Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Seven o'clock. Welcome, everyone. I'd like to start by inviting you to reflect and then communicate with each other a little bit about some given topic or um, sometimes I have a topic tonight. I don't really have a topic tonight. I'm I'm just going to do a Q&A. I'm not going to do a full Dharma talk, but um, reflecting on what you understand of Buddhism so far. Maybe some people are pretty new to Buddhism, but Reflecting on what you do know of Buddhism, is there anything that you know about Buddhism that doesn't quite fit or that you kind of have questions about? Like um, the common one is like, is reincarnation really true? Is that really a thing? Um, or karma or not self? Is it, is it, is it true that we don't have a permanent abiding soul self uh the way buddhism teaches you know like maybe those are some examples of common questions that we might have when we start studying buddhism be like well the mindfulness stuff makes sense the compassion loving kindness you know a lot of makes sense so much of buddhism is so rational and practical and applicable to our daily lives how we speak how we behave how we show up in our relationships all you know so much good like practical humanist psychology and then there's some mystical stuff that some people are like well i really like some aspects of of buddhism but there's some that i find uh, challenging to accept or have faith in or believe so talking to each other what are some of the things that come up for you around some maybe healthy skepticism or just questions about buddhist teachings um, at home i'll put you in breakout rooms in the room best to talk to somebody you don't know rather than the person that you're here with that way you know while you come you start to meet the different people who show up and and connect so find some find you know two or three people and talk about your questions about Buddhism. We'll come back. So we'll do a 30-minute sitting meditation. I'll give some instructions for those of you who are new and just the kind of reminders and the instructions. And um, if you have your own practice, feel free to tune me out and just do what you know to do where you're at in your practice. But the uh, initial instruction is to find a way to sit that's upright and relaxed. To establish a posture that feels comfortable to begin with, sustainable. Allowing our eyes to be gently closed so that we can bring our full attention inward. Releasing any unnecessary tension, any tightness in the 
body, relaxing the shoulders, the chest, the belly, the face, releasing the jaw, the brow. Remembering why you are meditating, whether it's been a long-term practice or something new to you. Remembering our aspirations, our intentions. And as we establish mindfulness, which is paying attention to the present time experience. Seems to work best when we bring an attitude of kindness, friendliness, patience. Accepting ourselves just as we are in this moment. As much as we can. And for the first few minutes, direct the mindfulness, present time, non-judgmental, friendly awareness to the breath, mindfulness of breathing. Buddha's straightforward and simple instructions were something like breathing in, one knows, I'm breathing in. Breathing out, one knows, I'm breathing out. So what? Is your direct experience of the breath? How do you know if it's coming or going? In order to stay present, to stay aware of the breath, we have to stay out of the thinking mind, not get involved in the plans and memories, to give our full attention to the body. Of course, the mind continues to think, calling for our attention. Part of the skill that we're learning is to ignore the mind, to come back to the breath over and over.
and we do become involved in the thoughts again. Remember the intention of kindness and acceptance, patience. As we disengage, come back to the direct experience of the body, breathing. But without that critical or judgmental tendency that we have, gently return.
you're new to this form of meditation, continuing to use the breath as the focus is useful in the beginning. Helps us break our identification with obeying the mind all of the time, learning to ignore it, skillful. The Buddha's instructions continue from the breath awareness, inviting us to be mindful of our whole being, present time awareness that becomes inclusive, including the thoughts, including the emotions, all of the sensations in the body, the sense doors of hearing and seeing, smelling and tasting. Coming to know what's happening moment to moment in our bodies, in our hearts and our minds. And becoming aware of the second foundation of mindfulness, which is our perception of pleasure and pain or neutrality. Each thought has a feeling tone of pleasant, pleasant thoughts or unpleasant thoughts. Each sensation in the body is experienced, perceived as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Likewise with the sense doors, hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting. mindfulness of what's happening and how it feels.
we identify the feeling tone so that we can see how much unnecessary suffering we create based on aversion to the unpleasant, clinging, craving for the pleasant. This is where mindfulness becomes an intervention, a skill to develop meeting the pleasant with non-attached appreciation, meeting the unpleasant with as much compassion as we can, rather than resisting or clinging, the invitation is to let go, to accept what's happening moment to moment. Becoming more tolerant of unpleasant sensations, emotions, thoughts. Becoming less dependent on our experience feeling pleasant.
spending the last few minutes of the meditation turning towards the simple practice of loving kindness, meeting yourself with as much kindness as you can, saying to ourselves, may I be at ease with my experience just as it is. I learn to be at ease, whether my mind, my body, my heart is experiencing the pleasant or unpleasant, neutral. May I learn to be at ease just as I am. May I learn to be at ease in this world with all of the unpleasantness of the world, all of the pain, the confusion, the ignorance. And extending this same wish to each other, this community meditating together, just as I wish to be at ease. I also wish for your ease. May you do what needs to be done to experience the happiness, the freedom, the sense of ease that you're seeking in your life. May you be at ease. May you be free from suffering. Let your mind reflect on the people that you care about, loved ones, wishing them ease, sending them loving kindness. And extending outward in all directions of the east and west, north and south. Covering this whole planet with the intention of compassion for the suffering, loving kindness towards all living beings. May all beings be at ease. May all beings be free from suffering.
Returning to your breath, your body, your life unfolding right here in your meditation. This being that we live with, our mind, our body, our memories, our hopes. In one teaching, it is said that the Buddha proclaimed that we could search all realms of existence and never find any living being more worthy of our love, our kindness, our compassion than ourselves. Remember, remembering your worth, your worthiness of your own loving kindness towards yourself, from yourself. So reflecting on uh, where you're at in your meditation practice and your study and application of Buddhist principles in your life, or maybe other spiritual principles. And any questions or even it doesn't have to be a question maybe you have a question about some aspect of the meditation instructions or of the buddhist teachings or something or you know some some specific question maybe you just have a um topic that you're interested in that you're thinking about that feels practical you know that you want to hear about more about loving kindness or forgiveness or compassion or maybe there's a, a a principle or a topic that you'd like me to speak about tonight because i don't have a i don't have a topic so you get to give me uh either q a or a topic that you'd like to hear about so i've got some hands online so i'll start there but think about uh those of you in the room if you have some topics uh we'll start with declan go ahead hey how's it going I have a like a basic sort of technical question and then a possible topic. But my technical question was uh, like AA has the big book and Christians have the Bible. So like which book do I read to do the four noble truths and the eightfold path? 
what would be a good one to like dive into or try to read and live out? Can it, people in the room hear the question? So the, um, the Buddhist equivalent to the Bible, the Christian, you know, core text of, of Christianity, the core text of, of Buddhism is called, they're called the suttas. Um, and these are the kind of the oldest teachings of Buddhism and um there's four volumes and like you know it's like several like if you have all of them they're like this and then if you have all of the translated suttas it's like a bookshelf of the kind of earliest buddhist teachings the kind of the buddhist bibles <laughs> um, and there's the short discourses and the middle length discourses and the long discourses of the suttas now I know that's not exactly your question. Your question is, you know, what's a good book about the Four Noble Truths? So there's two, like, I think with all religions, there's what's the original text, and then there's the commentaries on the original texts. So in Buddhism, there's what the Buddha taught, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, and you can find that in several places in the um, in the suttas, in the what's called the Pali Canon. Pali is the language that the buddha spoke supposedly now this is all 2600 years ago now here's one of the problems if you don't know this declan and everyone else one of the problems with buddhism the buddha supposedly uh, didn't want it written down wanted his teachings to be a oral tradition and supposedly one of the reasons why he didn't want it written down and so he he taught supposedly in uh poly now there's no um there's no text for poly there's no alphabet so poly was just a spoken language and in india there's lots of different dialects so it was a, it was a spoken kind of a, a common spoken language 2600 years ago sanskrit is how they write things down back then and now but he intentionally didn't teach in Sanskrit because of um, how religion takes language, puts it in a book, and then uh, owns it. So like in Hinduism, the Buddha was rebelling a bit against what was happening in India, where it was written down, but then most of the population is illiterate and can't read it. And you have to go to the priests, the Brahmin priests who can read in order for them to tell you what the teachings are and you have to pay them. And so the Buddha was trying to do this radical thing of like, let's not write this down so nobody owns it. Let's keep this uh, an oral tradition so that like, I just tell you, you remember it, you tell the next person, you tell the next person, we pass it on like that in a, a, a living tradition rather than put it in the book and then it's what's in the book. It wasn't until a couple hundred years after the Buddha died that they wrote it down. Because the first hundred years or so during the Buddha's life, spoken tradition, and then for the first you know, hundred years or so after, the, they chanted it, they memorized it. One of the reasons why Buddhism is in lists like the Four Noble Truths, right? Easy to remember. There's the Four Noble Truths. There's the Eightfold Path. You kind of you put it down, you remember it. Okay, there's like this, and then there's the five hindrances. Then there's the twelve links of dependent origination. There's the seven factors of awakening. There's the there's all of these lists because once you 
commit the list to memory, you don't need to read it. You just remember it because it's it's all there in the list. So if you want to, you can go back and read the original translation. It was originally written at the first time, a couple hundred years after the Buddha's life, all of the Buddhists, all the monks that had been remembering it, they got together and they're like, we better write this shit down before we fuck it up. Now, probably by then they'd already fucked it up. 200 years of religious, patriarchal, you know, and even in the Buddha's life, people were arguing about what he meant. Right. Well, we, we, we all heard the same talk, but you know how that is. We all heard the same talk, but I think he meant this. I think he meant that. I thought he had the emphasis on this aspect. I thought he had the emphasis on this aspect. So by the time they wrote it down, they got all of these hundreds of monks, all of these different traditions came together and they said, OK, let's agree on it. And they got it written down. And the language they wrote it down in was um, Sinhalese, so Sri Lankan. Uh, so the original Pali canon is written down in Sri Lankan, uh, not Sanskrit. But then it was translated into Sanskrit. It was translated, you know, and so then the stuff that we get is translated from Pali into Sri Lankan, from Sri Lankan into English and through all of these different filters. So there's a little problem with trying to get really like this is what the Buddha said for sure it's hard to get too fundamentalist about uh having total confidence and like that was siddhartha's direct words because you have to have a little humility of like mm, we think so <laughs> we're not really sure not a hundred percent so declan you can read the Pali canon you could even just you know the nice thing about everything being online you could just google um Pali canon What's the, the name of the original teachings is the um, uh, something chakra, the turning of the wheel, Dhamma, Dhamma Chakra Sutta, something like that. So it's the original teachings where it said this is where the Buddha first gave the Four Noble Truths, the first turning, put, setting the wheel of the Dharma into motion. And it was given at, um, uh, so not Savati, um, Saranath. It was given at Saranath to the five um, homeless folks that he had been, you know, his homies that he'd been practicing uh, asceticism with. So you could look that up. Now, there's a whole bunch of good commentaries on the Four Noble Truths. Um, I did one. It's called Against the Stream. Um, my, you know, so many teachers have done one where you say, like, here's the first noble truth. Here's what was translated. Here's how we can apply it. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh has a great book on the Four Noble Truths. Like, I mean, every, every basically any teacher that you're interested in probably has a book and some teachings on the Four Noble Truths. Um, but you know, my version is in Against the Stream. I hope that's. I know that's not what you're asking, but got me going. Mark, go ahead. Hey Noah. Uh kind of touched on it a little bit uh with the clan's uh question but um so at the time uh thinking back as far back as i could have ever heard about or read about there's been some sort of a religion based in society i was wondering what was going on i believe it was hinduism uh, where siddhartha was at um you talking 
a couple of your books about uh, being a spiritual revolutionist and wonder was he revolting against the religion that was going on i know that we don't believe in an outside um entity that you know judges us or you know rewards us that type of thing i was wondering was there a belief of any outside um type higher power like you know that we talk about i know a lot of us left a 12-step program because they wanted us to believe in this certain you know well maybe not but you you, you get i think you get where yeah. i'm going with this i know that um from hinduism you know pretty much then it was buddhism and you get into christianity i've been to self-realization temple where they well, they talk about Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jesus Christ. They have a picture on this on the wall. You know, science of mind, all that. What was the uh, atmosphere back then when Buddha was the revolution against that? In um, Indian culture, society, twenty six hundred years ago, and now it's a um, polytheistic society, uh, and they're what what we call Hinduism. What was originally Brahmanism. Uh, the Vedas, the Upanishads, they teach that there's many gods rather than our Judeo-Christian Islamic God of Abraham, monotheistic one God. So interesting, all of the Western religions that are monotheistic, there is one God and we're all, you know, they all hate each other, but they all believe in exactly the same thing, you know, a little different, uh, uh, you know, ideas about but you know it's all monotheism one god god of abraham in india it's not mono it's poly and there's kind of three main there was three main there's brahma which is the the creator and then there's shiva the destroyer and um vishnu the uh what's vishnu preserver i don't know something he's a he's a lover like krishna and and um so the Buddha, for whatever reason, said none of that makes sense to me. This sort of external gods and worshiping gods and looking outside of yourself for petitioning higher powers. He said, to, you know, it does just doesn't didn't resonate with him, didn't make sense to him. And um, he said, you know, what I teach is how to train your mind. It's really Buddhism is humanist psychology. It's not even really like we I, I use the term spiritual revolutionary. But there's an argument to be said, like, what, what is spiritual? We're not talking about spirits. We're not talking about mysticism. We're talking about how the human mind works and how it can create suffering or it can develop compassion and wisdom, you know, and it's all very practical about how we live our lives. And there's very little about any sort of external. And so the Buddha re rejected the kind of devotional uh, tendencies of the Indian culture and, and Hindu Brahmanism and, you know, what was in the, now there's a, a few pieces of it that he said, well, they were right about a few things like karma and reincarnation. So karma and reincarnation are um, predate Buddha and are a little bit mystical in some ways. Uh, but he said, you know, this is true. This is part of my teaching. Uh, we're not looking outside of ourselves. We're fully responsible for our own happiness. And it's not what's happening. It's how we relate to what's happening. And we can develop compassion for pain and non-attachment. But karma is a law. And reincarnation is a process. Rebirth is a process that we're in. We're 
supposedly, apparently, uh, part of his teachings that were also part of the culture that he grew up in, the, the Brahmanic Hindu culture. Um, but I do think, like, I don't, you know, it does seem like, you know, Jesus in one way or another was rebelling against the, uh, you know, religion of his time, the, the Hebrew culture, the kind of Old Testament. And he was like, yeah, they're, they're way off base. Although I, you know, they're talking, but we're talking about the same God. Uh, Buddha also was like, you know, there's, there's some stuff here that is true in the, in the Brahm, but they're way off base. They've externalized it too much. This is an internal job. It's not about making offerings or, you know, bathing in the, you know, sacred rivers or it's not a devotional. It's a, it's a training. It's a mind training, uh, which will lead to enlightenment, to happiness. I hope that's helpful. It's beautiful. Thank you. Any questions in the room? Yeah, please. Hey, Tom. sense of self or ability to set boundaries, whatever it might be. And um, I accept the fact that there are times when I have no control or I am compelled to help. Mm -hmm. But I think there are times when I need to figure out where the line is. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can tell us where your line is and uh, help with that. Um, it's a good question. Uh, maybe I can paraphrase it at home. For those of you at home that probably couldn't hear him so well, um, we have compassion. We want to end our own suffering. We also want to help others. It's an engage. You know, it's a relational. It's an engage. What can we do to create a positive change? How can we? Is a core value. And the dilemma that Aton's bringing up is like. Um, how do we know when it's too much, like when we're, um, you know, moved to help, but um, where's a healthy balance with that? Where's the healthy boundaries? How do we not get overwhelmed with the immensity of suffering in the world and, you know, maybe in our lives, depending on kind of what circles you walk in, but um, that, that realization that most of us have at some point of like, I can't, help everyone all of the that needs help it's just to be on my capacity 
but that willingness, like I want to help, I want to be of service. And when it's appropriate, I, you know, can talk with people and, you know, feed people and do, do things, engage in action. Um, I don't have a, you know, you're saying like, where's mine? Here's what happens for me. I say yes to too much. And then I get over, you know, stressed out and a little over kind of overwhelmed, like, oh, it's got too much on my plate. And then I pull back and clear it off a little bit. And then I say yes to too much. And then I pull back. And then I say yes to too much. And it's a constant dance of, you know, and then sometimes I'm like, hmm, actually, I have more, I've got more bandwidth or more free time or ability to do it. Um, but so for me over the years, it's, you know, how many people am I sponsoring or mentoring or students or clients or, and sometimes it's too much and I'm like, oh, I got to pull back from this a bit. Um, and then sometimes I'm like, actually, I've got some free time and I can take the calls and uh, I can do the, um, so it's, I don't, I don't have an answer of like, it's this many, like I can help 10 people a month or something, you know, I don't have a number. I just, there's just that sense of um, wanting to help, wanting to be of service, wanting to encourage. And, and there is that we're all responsible. So you've probably heard me say this before. I remember hearing this the first time and just thinking it was brilliant. There's compassion and compassion has to include ourselves. And compassion is I care. Um, but then there's codependency. And I heard a Tibetan teacher call it idiot compassion, where it's like, there's some compassion there, but there's all of this attachment to other people not suffering. And so in our tradition, we have compassion on one hand, but then equanimity, understanding that I care about you. I want you to be free from suffering, but I know that ultimately you have to free yourself from the clinging, the aversion, the self-centeredness that's creating your suffering. I can never do that for you. What I can do is encourage and support and guide and hope maybe inspire. We can inspire each other to do it. You know, when people see like, oh, you're not suffering the way you used to. Maybe I'll meditate too. Maybe I'll get sober. Maybe I'll whatever it is. So that balance of also knowing that like we can't save anybody from the causes of suffering, the internal Buddhist perspective, the internal causes of suffering, the clinging, the aversion, the self-centeredness. Everyone has to do that for themselves. Now, on some other levels, we can feed people who are hungry. We can protect people who are unsafe. We can speak out against ignorance. We can, you know, we can do some of that stuff that's not going to end suffering, you know, but it will alleviate harm, right? So there's those two, two different levels. I don't, I don't think I have a good answer other than I'm always looking for that balance myself. And I usually, um, find it when I've gone too far in this direction, then I correct too far in this direction, then correct, you know, this idea of a middle path, a balanced life feels, you know, maybe partially also being an addict. Uh, I tend to overdo things. A lot of us, right. tend to overdo things, including service. Can, there is a such thing as too much. Um, 
And we have to find that healthy balance of like, I want to use my life to create a positive change, but I also need to be present for my children, to be present for my relationships and to not be so busy helping others that I'm not present for myself and the people in my life. So go back to online, Nate, go ahead. Hey, what's going on guys? What's up Sangha? Um, so yeah, I had a, one of the questions that you started this with was what do we know about Buddhism and where do we have more questions? Um, I was listening to a podcast the other day and this guy did this long paper on it, was talking about the 31 planes of existence and he was also talking about uh, the six realms of rebirth and existence. And then there's also the desire realm and all these other things, right? I'm just curious as to what's the interplay between all these? How do you make sense of them? And how on earth do you remember any of this? <laughs> you know, repetition. It depends on what kind of mind you have. Some people don't have the mind. For whatever reason, I've got the kind of mind that if I'm interested in something, and I read it and I hear it a couple of times, it sticks with me. I remember it. Not everybody has, you know, we all have different levels of memory. Um, the planes of existence stuff, I am a little bit interested in. Sometimes you've maybe heard me before give the talks about the six realms and the, you know, 30, 27 heaven realms and seven hell realms. And um, I like it as psychological analogy for mind states rather than actual planes of existence or realms that we uh, reincarnate in. Just, I feel like it's a, an interesting uh, explanation of how our human mind works. And um, that there's all of these levels of joy and happiness, heaven realms that the human mind can experience, that our lives can can experience. And there's all of this hell, all of this suffering that we can experience. So I mostly look at those teachings as um, mind states rather than planes of existence. But, um, you know, I don't, I don't know what the Buddha meant by it. He could have been, you know, literal could be very literal that there's 31 planes of existence and that there's six realms of rebirth. And, um, but I, since I'm a little agnostic about the whole reincarnation thing, I, um, I like to just see it as like in this lifetime, I've experienced hell and I've experienced heaven and I've experienced a hungry ghost and jealous gods and, animalistic, you know, I've experienced it in this lifetime as a human being, rather than past lives or future lives. And, you know, so that piece, if you're interested in it, you study it, you read about it, you think about it, you discuss it, and uh, it'll stick if it feels important. Some of it will eventually. Please. Thank you. Um, welcome. I am actually considering getting into like end of life care. And I'm wondering because one of my wishes would be to have sort of a Buddhist ceremony, but I'm not really even quite sure what that could be. And so do you have any knowledge about um, 
So Buddhism is a big umbrella term for a whole bunch of different ones. So like in Tibetan Buddhism, they'd have different rituals around death and they have a whole map of the bardo kind of between incarnations. In Theravadan Buddhism, um, there's not, not a lot of ritual that I'm aware of around it. And it might be as simple as kind of the refuges and the Four Noble Truths and, and just kind of being mindful of the process of the feeling tones in, in death. And, but I'm sure that there is the, the monastics probably do have some ritual uh, after death around, you know, how to do that in, but it might be different in the Thai culture than it is in the Sri Lanka. So a lot of the death stuff is like cultural and it's not just like the Buddhists, you know. Um, so I don't have a lot of information about it, but there is, uh like buddhist chaplaincy trainings where you you know could get more info on that and more kind of uh there's a there's some buddhist hospices that have put a lot of investigation into this i know in san francisco there was the zen hospice project and you can do trainings and kind of look at their uh, rituals around it <coughs> tara go ahead um I was wondering, you talked about balance in your life, and that was sort of along the lines of my question, but in terms of family and being a householder and how to practice both compassion and non-attachment like with one's children, it's really hard for me sometimes. I had a, um, so I'm not sure that I don't exactly know how to answer this. I'm also a parent, so I, I struggle with this or you know reflect on this too. Part of, here, part of what I wanna say is I'm not sure it's even healthy to have non-attachment towards our children. I had a friend who had been practicing a lot for a long time in a um, Burmese tradition and doing like three month retreats and, and going to Burma and had, you know, had core teachers, Burmese Buddhist monks. And she got pregnant and, and told her teacher, who'd been her teacher for a long time, decades, and said, you know, can I have a baby? And the, the monk said to her, like, well, I'm sorry to hear that. There's no hope for your liberation now, <laughs> which was fucked up, but funny. But also, you know, pointing towards that, like, if we have to be non-attached to become fully liberated, how are you going to do that as a parent? Really, like, how can you... Uh, now, you've probably heard me, Tara, and most of you, the ideal that we're looking for is connected, non-clinging. And there is a way, an, an ideal way to be totally connected and responsible and the appropriate boundaries and good parenting without clinging or trying to control our children, but still guiding them and still, and, and being actually non-attached but in a connected, loving, present, you know, so you following me? Clinging is controlling. Attachment is a controlling thing that says, I need you to be the way I want you to be. That's attachment. I need you to, you know, it's, it's controlling. 
connection is I understand that you're, you know, a child with your own karma and your own attitudes and your own, you know, fucking sassy temper tantrums. And I don't need you to not be that way, but I'm here to guide, support, encourage, enforce boundaries, all of that stuff. But I'm not clinging to you being a certain, you know, way. You don't have to be happy all of the time. You don't have to. Uh, so there, ideally, there's a way. But my own, I experienced this both in parenting and in romantic relationships. Uh, so hard to not cling to the kids. It's so hard to not cling in relation romantic relationships and so it's a little bit like that question with Aton, which is like i can't do it all i can't just be non-attached connection all of the time i cling then i probably detach and then i reconnect <laughs> and then i cling and then i come back into connection then i cling then i come back into connection sometimes i get my feelings hurt and detach <laughs> i do it with my kids i do it with my wife I, and it's that ideal of i want to be in this non-attached connection but you know every time i cling i have to re re-establish the non-clinging because we seem to be pretty wired to cling to get attached and then it's you know even a little bit more confusing i don't know and it doesn't sound like this is your question but i get it a lot because of um the psychological theory of attachment attachment theory where um they use the term attachment as a healthy thing, healthy attachment. And Buddhism, we're always like, there's no healthy thing about attachment. Attachment is suffering. Attachment is clinging. It is the cause of suffering. But connection is not the cause of suffering. And a healthy connection that is not controlling, that is not attached, that is not uh, manipulative, but is accepting, within the responsibility of the relationship. Yeah, I was thinking more like, you know, when, because my daughter's 10, I was thinking like, you know, she starts doing drugs or something, she has alcoholism on both sides of the family and I have concern. And it's really hard. I think this was a subject actually related to Martha by Herman Hess, like how to see your son you know, or your child go through some sort of trauma and not want to, intervene and stop it but well and it's where the equanimity practice is so key and to even see our children as having their own karma and that they are ultimately responsible for how they relate to pleasure and pain and it's our job as parents to give them the tools and to model it is okay to be in pain and to develop compassion for it and um, you know pleasure is transient and it's not the source of happiness and so we model that for our children and then they have to decide whether they're going to do it or not you know my parents in some way modeled that for me and i got strung out anyways but because they had modeled it for me uh i came around to the dharma at a young age because i was like oh that's a dead end you know drugs and violence are a dead end maybe there's something to this meditative solution of non-attached compassionate response so i think that that's the my father said to me at one point when i got serious about meditation he said you know as a as a parent the one thing that you want most for your children as a you know as a buddhist parent uh, 
the one thing you want most for your children is something you can never give to them, which is the love of the Dharma. You can't give that to anybody. Everyone has to come upon that. And unfortunately, almost everyone has to come on it through, come to it through suffering. Right. So, you know, we came to it because we're suffering for our kids to come to it. They're going to have to suffer some to be motivated to be like, okay, I'm going to train my mind because I'm tired of suffering. All right. Time for a couple more. Um, Teresa. Hi, Noah. Um, my question, I've been working on kind of the healing journey and um, dealing with childhood trauma and, and healing some of that. And my question for you is, as you go through that healing journey and you're letting go of, I have very controlling parents. And so letting go of kind of the, what they forged within me and then rediscovering who I am without that. I'm having a lot of trouble with um, attachment to the self and you know being non-attached but then also um coming into yourself and um yeah i don't know if that helped explain it i don't know tell me if this is right or not but um so there's a lot of emphasis on buddhism of investigating and unpacking and sort of dismantling identification with a permanent i me mine permanent self one of the uh, wise Western Buddhist psychologists said, yes, but in order, because a lot of Western psychology is helping us develop a healthy sense of self and a uh, you know, strong ego, good boundaries, and you know, knowing who we are. And, and, and so it can feel like, oh, it's a little, a little bit at odds. You know, is my trauma resolution creating too much I, me, mine, my past, my trauma, my healing. And then Buddhism saying like, you know, don't be so self-centered. Yeah, they feel like they contrast each other. They can contrast each other. But a, a wise uh, Buddhist psychologist I heard one time said, uh, perhaps, it, you know, for us, we need to um, develop a healthy sense of self, which we do with the loving kindness. May I be happy. May I be at ease. May I be free from suffering. We do with the forgiveness. I forgive you. I forgive myself. Perhaps we have to develop some of those healthy senses of self before we go into the anatta, unpacking, dismantling, and seeing, you know, even the, where I ended the meditation tonight, I said, you know, the Buddha said we could search all realms of existence and never find anybody more worthy of love than ourselves. So taking that on one hand, okay, I need to learn my worth, my ability to love myself to, and have good boundaries and to forgive my parents and to forgive myself, all of that. And then I also have to realize this whole self, like where, where is this self that I love? What is it? Where is, where is this I, me, mine that I'm loving? And you start to unpack it and you start to see it's completely safe to dismantle the identification with ego as self or with our trauma as who we are. They're just memories, but they're not just memories until they're just memories. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're real as long as, you know, until we've had some resolution and some wisdom and some awareness, like, oh, these are just memories that the mind is holding on to, and I'm not my mind. It's not who I am. And then the question of like, who am I? It's never really answered, but it's a good question. 
who am I? What am I? Where is this permanent self that I feel like is me? But the more we're mindful, the more we see there's this unfolding of experience and there's no owner of it. There's awareness and there's phenomena passing through awareness, but where is a solid, permanent, unchanging self? Can't find it. So trauma resolution, loving kindness, compassion, forgiveness are all trauma resolution tools as far as I believe. And then there's the unpacking and the, the insight into it's not all that personal after all. It's just the mind reacting to pain from the past. It's not a self. So it's a good thing to struggle with and um, total encouragement to continue the heart practices and the psychological practices that are helping us heal those wounds that we're carried, carrying and then move on to unpacking who we actually are and who we are not because we are not our pain. That's not who we are. But we remember it. <laughs> and our mind loves to remind us of it. But it's not who we are. Hope that's helpful. Yeah, thank you. Anybody else in the room? Yeah, George, go ahead. yeah um could you hear at home george was saying you know reflecting on you know this war that's happening in palestine israel and um you know and lots of other places on the planet as well um you know the ukraine and there's you know there's a, I've, sometimes i look up like how many violent conflicts are happening and most of the time they're off our radar if it's happening in africa or south america or you know it's a little bit off our radar um this one's really on the radar because it's israel and america is supporting and it's palestine and so the buddha's per, the buddha's uh culture 2600 years ago was war-torn he grew up in the midst of violent conflict and his whole family was murdered uh, uh, by, you know, war. And his father supposedly was um, a king and a warlord king. And then one of his cousins, you know, attacked his family and, and basically wiped them out. And, you know, there was there was a lot of war in the, you know, kind of in the time of, of the Buddha. And so he did speak about it quite a bit in kind of specific and general terms of like, it's never, it doesn't work. Violence never solves anything other than, there, there's one pithy quote from the Buddha where he says, um, in a violent conflict, in a war, um, there's never a winner. There's just, you know, both sides, the karma of whether you're the aggressor or you're the protector or the you know both sides lose karmically in any violence and especially in big violent war conflicts um 
you might get the land that you want or whatever it is, but you lose karmically, you own all of that, even if it's retribution, even if it's revenge, even if they started it, who, you know, like how the fuck, who started it anywhere? I'm not just talking about in the Middle East right now, but you look at all of the, you know, who started it, so, you know, but if someone somewhere. So Buddhism is um, pacifist, nonviolent, and the Buddha did speak out, you know, and there's a few examples in his life where he actually uh, went onto the front lines because he was a prince, because he was supported by some of the different kings and kingdoms, and he had the ear of the leaders. He actually went into war zones a couple times uh, and said, like, can you please reconsider? what you're about to do, the karma you're about to create is not worth it. And sometimes they listen to him and he actually helped avoid some violence. And sometimes they just waited until he left and then went and attacked and, and killed because, well, let's not kill in front of the Buddha. The Buddha's watching, so let's, you know, wait. And then they went and, and killed afterwards. I was talking uh, a couple weeks ago to a vet veteran with a lot of trauma, a lot of complex PTSD from being in Afghanistan and, and about how, um, you know, he was talking about how, you know, this world of, um, uh, how, what, how did he term it? This world that we live in of empire making. And it's just the whole history of, there's just one, you know, one empire, whether it's the Roman Empire or the Aztecs or the Mayans or the, you know, the American, you know, kind of current, you know, kind of empire, the Israelis or the, you know, Middle East or, you know, whatever. And it does seem like the Buddha seemed to kind of live in acceptance of like, yeah, that's what's happening here on planet Earth human beings fueled by greed, fueled by hatred, fuel, you know, and then you get religion and you get poverty and you get oppression in there. It's always been war. There's always, you know, it seemed like his attitude was like compassion, nonviolence. Let's do what we can to create a positive change, but also accept it's the way it is here. The unenlightened masses are going to continue to kill each other. And enlightenment and true compassion and true wisdom is incredibly rare on this planet, on this realm, in this plane of existence. He didn't seem to have a lot of hope for peace, for world peace. And his core message was, uh, although the world will probably continue to be very confused and war-like and greed-based and self-centered fear-fueled, we have the Dharma so that we can free ourselves. And this very optimistic, you know, in some ways, Buddhism is saying all living beings have the power, have the potential, have the ability to free themselves from suffering. No matter what culture you come from, no matter what, you know, if you're willing to train your mind, you can free yourself from suffering. But there's also the understanding that very few people are going to take that invitation, are going to actually do that work. 
And the few people that do, I don't think they're all Buddhists. I'm sure that there are enlightened Muslims and enlightened Christians and enlightened Jews and enlightened Hindus and, you know, who develop that kind of compassion, that kind of wisdom, that kind of liberated awareness. And Buddhists don't have the corner on the market. I've, you know, I, I like Buddhism because it gives us such clear instructions. Feels like a lot of the other religions can justify violence. There might be an argument other than like the Jains or, um, you know, Buddhism might be the only world religion which is absolutely nonviolent. Absolutely nonviolence in the teachings of the Buddha. Now, that having been said, there's been Buddhist wars. The Sri Lankan Buddhists were at war for decades with Hindus in the north of Sri Lanka. World War II, Japan, they're Buddhists, you know, out kind of conquering, creating the empire in, in you know, Pearl Harbor and all over the South Pacific. And so just because you're Buddhist doesn't mean you're following the nonviolent teachings of the Buddha. Right. At one point, China was Buddhist. Then the communists came in and they're like, well, let's kill everybody and take Tibet. And, you know, the Tibetan Buddhists who are like, oh, we're pretty nonviolent got massacred. So, you know, Buddha is not a very good national defense strategy. You know, if you're actually, if you're actually a nonviolent culture, a violent culture likely will come and kill you. So it's not, a, you know, as far as like social, political, you know, it didn't work out very well for the Tibetan people that were nonviolent Buddhists. That's a good example. And then the Sri Lankans were like, yeah, we're nonviolent, but fuck that. We're fighting for our land, you know, or whatever it was. We're, you know, we're going to war. You know, Burma, there's an ethnic cleansing Buddhists killing Muslims in Burma. And, you know, it's like, so Buddhism is a religion that's not really applied by most of the people that live in that religion. But the teachings of the Buddha nonviolence. That's probably enough for tonight. Everything, you know, that I share, I don't always remember to say this, but I like to, um, you know, some of it's in line with early Theravadan Buddhism, some of it's my views and opinions and, you know, bastardized Western psychological perspectives. So, uh, one of the things that it's said in the suttas, almost every teaching from the Buddha is ended with, it's now time for you to do as you see fit. And the, the, the spirit of rather than believing Buddhism or believing teachers that you're listening to, reflect on it and say, hey, what, what do I, what makes sense to me? What doesn't make sense? Set the stuff that doesn't make sense aside. I uh, don't think you have to believe it or don't think you have to be a Buddhist. Um, but, you know, some of this useful for my own, you know, liberation for my own freedom. So I encourage you to relate to it in that way. We'll end with that for tonight. Um, class is done. Against the Stream is a nonprofit, is a uh, donation-based organization. And we have, you know, rent and utilities and employees. And so be as generous as you would like to be, be as generous as you can be. 
suggested donation for drop-in coming to the Zoom or coming in person is $25. If you can afford $25 donation, thank you. If you can't afford that, know that you're welcome to be here regardless of ability to donate. Give whatever feels appropriate to you. Um, consider becoming a monthly uh, uh, supporter where you just say, hey, I want to give $50 a month to the center or uh, on the website, there's a, you can, I think there's like $25, $50, a month that you can just say, I want to give that whether I show up or not. So kind of get out of this capitalist fee for service model and say, I just want to be a part of this thing and I just want to support it. And I want it to be here for others, even when I'm not here. So please consider that. New Year's Eve is open for registration. We're doing uh, the annual, I think this is probably the 17th or 18th um, consecutive New Year's Eve against the stream intention setting ceremony. I think I've been doing it for 18 years, uh, every here in LA, New York before that, San Francisco before that. So for decades, I've been, I've been doing this thing where we do the um, five precepts, we take refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha, we have a candle lighting ceremony where we express our intentions for the coming year. So uh, registration's open for that. So um, consider joining me if you'd like to. I'll be here next week and then I'll be out of town for a couple of weeks, but join me next week. And um, thank you, Sebastian's at the front desk if you have any questions. Thanks, Jeff and M, for uh, helping support online and uh, offering of the merit, many goodness that comes from our practice and discussion of the Buddha Dharma be shared with each other here in the Sangha and offered outward in all directions. Each of us get as free as possible in this lifetime. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.